6.37 p.m. Live from the Bar Cart. A look into the style, culture, strength, and grind of the modern day man. Welcome to 1.37 p.m. Live from the Bar Cart. I'm JJ McCorvey, Senior Editor of The Grind. And I'm Brian Anthony Hernandez, Senior Editor of Culture. And here at 1.37 p.m., we're all about looking at news through the lifestyle of entrepreneurship. So that if that's in business, music, sports, or other industries. Mm-hmm. And you talked to Roy Sakoff today. I did. And he is a perfect example of that multi-hyphenate type of entrepreneur. He is. Roy Sikoff is, of course, the founding editor of the Huffington Post and co-creator of HuffPost Live, mm-hmm. their live streaming uh, interview uh, segment every day. And most recently, he's the author of a new comedic book called Black Self-Control. Mm-hmm. So here's our conversation. All right, Roy Seekoff, welcome to the 1.37 p.m. live from the Bar Cart podcast. Now, here's the thing. It's not 1.37, though. The name is 1.37, but it's a little bit earlier. Yeah. So I'm feeling like a little bit thrown off by that. It's 1.37 p.m. somewhere, right? Everywhere. It's like the, the, the great those <laughs> clocks. Yeah. It's always 5 p.m. Yeah. somewhere. Time to drink. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks for stopping by. Thank you. People know you best as the founding editor of the Huffington Post and co-creator of HuffPost Live. But today, I want to start by talking about this thing. Your new book. Yes. It's called Lack Self-Control, True Stories I Waited Until My Parents Died to Tell. Yes. And you just told me that there's an Easter egg on the cover. Yes. It's, uh, you know, uh, on the cover, there's pictures, theoretically, from childhood uh, pictures of yearbooks. And uh, we had some uh, a hard time clearing the rights for some of these pictures. So at the last minute, we scrambled. And one of the photos is my wife, my wife of 25 years, my beloved Tammy. And so it's a little nice treat to have her on the on the cover of this first book, which offended her so much when I wrote it. So, <laughs> Oh, hi, Tammy, if you're listening. Yes, I'm sure she will be. <laughs> All right. So your book is named after the column in the elementary school report cards. Yes. Lack self-control where teachers can check off yeah. um, if you're not being a good student. Yes. Well, and behavioral problems were seemed apparently my signature uh, because uh, when I was writing the book, uh, I had a lot of stories in mind, you know, and um, I wanted to refresh my memory about certain specific things. So I dug through some old files that my mother had kept and I found this trove of report cards from like kindergarten through ninth grade. And as I looked at it, uh, a, a picture emerged, uh, and it, what it was was not a pretty picture because every single report card period, the teacher said the same thing. Roy lacks self-control. <laughs> Roy needs to sit down and shut up. Roy is too disruptive in class. He seems like a nice kid, but he's a pain in the ass. So I saw this, and at the time, I saw it kind of as a very negative thing, like a scarlet letter. Like, like I had problems. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I grew up and grew older and sort of reached now this position of middle age that I'm at, I realized that it's actually the best way to live your life. It's more um, of a badge of honor than a scarlet letter. Exactly. And, and not kind of, I don't see it as, um, you know, doing, lacking impulse control and just doing whatever comes into your head or saying anything. It's not that, but it's sort of a way of approaching life. Sort of, I, I go back to nursery school and you don't have to color inside the lines. You know, you could, you could sort of be messy and you could sort of put things out there and you could be funny and you could, um, you know, as I say in the book, I, I describe some of the things that it means to me. And one of them is, you know, that you should speak up and you should speak out and you shouldn't be afraid to say that the emperor uh, has no clothes and, in fact, has a has a very small penis. So this is <laughs> this is sort of a way to approach uh, living your life. 
I love your humor, and that's sprinkled throughout the book. Uh, I hope it's not sprinkled. I hope it's dolloped on. <laughs> I, I hope it's slathered on the humor. Sprinkled sounds like there's a laugh now and then. It's vaguely humorous. <laughs> well, in honor of your book, I actually dug up my first grade report card for you. Wow. Uh, because it was very... It, predicted my future just like yours predicted yours I'd, I'd like you to read it i would love to see this there's a typo in there for my what teacher, very but. nice handwriting your teacher had. what was her name do you remember mrs cell miss miss cell because then she got married miss cell yes like s-e-l-l or like c-l-l or like amoeba cell you know it's like <laughs> um brian is doing a good job a uh, school <laughs> Thank you, teacher. You have a little problem with let the at out. However, he enjoys minding other students' business and needs to learn to work without disturbing others. Brian, as we say in the uh, the Yiddish language, you're mishpucha. That's family. Okay. You're like, uh, you know, you're part of the, the tribe here, you know, yeah. the, the, the lack self-control tribe. I mean, now I'm a long-term long-time journalist, so yep. I'm glad I didn't take her advice in minding Well, you know, it's really funny, though, Brian, because um, <laughs> as I found these report cards, one of the things I found, uh, two things. One, my nursery school teacher actually wrote, Roy has a delightful sense of humor that is enjoyed by all, including his teacher, right? And then my first grade teacher said, Roy enjoys creative writing and should be encouraged to do so. So really, by the age of seven, I was basically a funny writer. And yet, I spent the next 40 years of my life trying to figure what the fuck I should be doing with my life. <laughs> So um, you should listen to your seven-year-old self. Definitely. Maybe he's telling you something. <laughs> well, one other person who thinks you're a great humorist is the reviewer on your cover, Mr. Larry David, who wrote, I've read worse. Yes. <laughs> High praise indeed from Larry David. How do you know Larry David? So Larry David, pardon me, I'm taking a sip of uh, uh, an ice-cold water beverage. Um <laughs> <clears throat> and clearing my throat. Uh, Larry David uh, was two things. He was uh, many things, of course. But one of the things was he was one of the first investors in the Huffington Post. Right. He was good friends with Ariana. And he and his wife, Lori, his wife at the time, invested in uh, Huffington Post. And he also blogged for us. And so I got to know him in, in that way. And he was also a dad at the same school that my kids went to. His daughter was in the same class as my son. Wow. So, world. so we sort of got to know each other a little bit there. And when it came time for me to, you know, look for people to do an early blurb for the book, I thought, my God, the greatest thing I could possibly have. If somehow, some way the heavens would part and Larry David could give me a blurb, uh, I could die a happy man. So basically, I can die any can day die now. Right I'm now. a happy guy. <laughs> yeah, because Larry came through with uh, a true inimitable Larry David quote, you know. I've read worse. <laughs> I've read worse. When I got that, I ran out to my wife and said, honey, Larry David says I've read worse. We're done. I have the cover. <laughs> Another great review in here, you mentioned Ariana Huffington, co-founder of the Huffington Post, says, it's frank, fearless, and very funny. What's your relationship with Ariana now, now that you're not with? Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, as any long-term relationship, it's very complicated. You can't put it in one sentence. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Ariana, I, Ariana and I were together for 17 years. So I worked with her for five years, uh, five and a half years before HuffPost even, you know, was a mm -hmm. glimmer in anybody's eye. And then we had that great run at HuffPost mm -hmm. for um, 11 and a half years. So 17 years, she and I were not just, you know, uh, work together. We were very, very, very uh, tied into each other's work lives. I mean, we spoke all the time. 
you know, uh, sometimes 50, 50 times a day. So, um, you know, I was sort of her lieutenant mm -hmm. and whatever Ariana was working on, I worked on with her. And uh, so, you know, fantastic. Uh, I, I really honestly, I look at my life and um, every single aspect of my life is better now than it was when I met her. So that's kind of a good uh, indication that uh, there's something very wonderful happening in that relationship. She's a she's a very, very interesting, uh, charismatic, dynamic person. One of the great, you know, and I don't mean this in a in a in a, in a negative way. She's she stirs the pot. You know, there's always something interesting happening. There's ideas flowing. Mm -hmm. There's people coming in and out. It's a very um, lively uh, uh, life that she leads. And being in the, you know, very close vicinity of that inner circle is uh, is great. And so, yeah, so I spoke to her yesterday and, uh, you know, we're we're uh, we're very, very good friends. That's amazing. And when you finally finished the book, how did you present it to her? Well, you know, <clears throat> it's interesting because um I told her that I was writing the book and um, I kind of wanted her to be the first reader uh, 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 of uh, the blurbing nature. You know, I wanted I wanted to blurb from Ariana, of course, yeah. you know, 17 years. And so I called her up and she said, you know, of course, darling, send it over. I, I love to read it, you know, <laughs> and I sent it over and, you know, I waited there with sort of anticipation. And she wrote me back and she said, I love this. This is great. You know. I'll give you a blurb. <laughs> and so uh, I was very, very pleased that, that she liked it. You know, because Ariana has a great sense of humor. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's, you know, smart and, 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 and all those things. But she's also, you know, really funny. I yeah. think that's one of the things that separated her from the crowd was she was always, you know, she could go on MSNBC and then go on Bill Maher and be great on both, you know. And so, uh, yeah, so it was, a, it was a thrill to have her, to have her like it. What have you learned with her over those almost two decades? I think uh, I came to learn how important trusting your gut is, uh, you know, your instincts. Ariana has a golden gut. She has this ability to see around corners. I mean, I think it's one of her great gifts. She's kind of like can see two zeitgeists away. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like she'll see uh, what's coming and sees trends coming. And, you know, she was very prescient and seeing how blogging and new media was going to mm -hmm. uh, uh, explode. And then now she's, you know, doing her company Thrive Global, which is all about, you know, wellness and sleep and, 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 and you know, disconnecting from our always on world. And so trusting your gut. And I actually found that in myself because um, I've had a very zigzag life. You know, I, I, I speak at a lot of colleges and I, I have two college age children. And, you know, I see that a lot of their contemporaries sort of see life as linear. I'm going to do this and I'm going to get these grades and I'm going to get into that college and then that grad school, then I'm going to get that job and I'm going to be happy. Mm -hmm. And of course, life doesn't work that way. Yeah. You know, there's uh, no set timetable. There's curveballs, there's, you know, trap doors, there's all kinds of stuff that happens. And so I kind of look at my life as a zigzag life. Uh, I went this way and then I went that way. I failed a number of times. I did some things fairly well, you know, and um, but through all of that, through all the different manifestations of, of my life, uh, professional life uh, and personal life, uh, I came to realize that what I needed to apply uh, to these tasks were all the same. So whether I was writing screenplays, which I did, or whether I was producing at the network that became E, mm -hmm. or whether I was, you know, in an edit bay cutting video, or whether I was editing people's uh, copy 
for the Huffington Post or running HuffPost Live um, as an executive. It's really the same uh, things that you have to apply. And what it comes down to, because let's be honest, the business that we work in, I feel like I'm in the Godfather. The business we have chosen, <laughs> Michael. It's the business we have chosen. The business that we have chosen is very subjective, right? So there's no right place to cut a scene. Mm-hmm. It's just what you feel is the right place. And there's no right place when you're directing or blocking out a scene to go, yeah, I want you to cross here and then pause there and then walk across. Is that right? There's, there's no right answer to that. But what happens is it's very subjective and you apply your taste, your instinct, your gut. And if more often than not people agree with you, you'll have a pretty good career. And if more often than not people don't agree with you, you're going to have to find another line of work. You know? exactly. so, and I found it to be exactly the same. All those different things that I did, really, I had to learn to trust my mm-hmm. own gut. And, you know, I, I think luck plays a huge part in it. And you shouldn't be uh, blind to the fact that luck is a very, very important part of things. And also, I'm a big believer in what I call playing the long game. Not having this minute by minute, is this right? Is this good? Is this, you know, you got to sort of commit to something, go all the way with it and keep pushing and don't be so quick to pull the ripcord and, 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 and bail, you know, because sometimes you can't see that the thing that seems like a bad thing is going to be the good thing. Yeah. Uh, two examples from my life. Uh, I was a screenwriter for eight years. And I worked a lot. I was a middle class kind of, you know, had a good career, making good money. Uh, But I was very frustrated because nothing got made, you know, because there's the whole development hell world of Hollywood. Right. So I was working for studios. I was always busy, but I was really frustrated because I was like an architect who only made blueprints. They never built my buildings, (laughs) you know. And so um, at that point, through weird circumstances, which I will tell you about another time or later if you want, um, I met Ariana. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, in some ways I have failed at the thing that I set out to do. I mean, I went out to L.A. to go to USC film school and I wanted to be a writer and a director of feature films. And I thought, wow, so I'm taking this job, which, by the way, was an eight week job, which turned into 17 years. Wow. Right. But anyway, so I thought <clears throat> this is kind of a failure. But in fact, pardon me, <clears throat> it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. But I didn't know that. Time. At the time. And I didn't know it right away. It wasn't like, Eureka, I have found my people. You know, I mean, it was a lot of hard work and a lot of left turns and right turns and, you know, uncertainty. When we launched the Huffington Post, nobody thought that it was going to become what it became, really. I mean, if we're being honest, you know, we, yeah. we thought there was potential. We thought that this could turn out to be something cool, but it wasn't like, oh, yeah, baby, you know, we're going to have 200 million unique visitors a month. Yeah, sure. Like, you know, it was a big risk. But the thing was, you committed, like you said, you have to keep committing every single time you try yeah. something new and, and apply every day. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> when we were um, building HuffPost Live, which was a year long process, it was, you know, it was a, it was a big project yeah. and um, we worked our asses off. And we were building something from scratch. We really were creating something that didn't exist. We, we created a platform that didn't exist, you know, all the technology, all that kind of stuff. And it was a shitload of work. And uh, one night, uh, the fellow who co-created it with me, Gabe Lewis and I, uh, we both are from L.A., but we were working here and we were sort of living at the Bowery Hotel. 
That became my home away from home. <laughs> and we were walking to what we called home. We were walking back to the hotel from our office. It was like one in the morning. We'd put in a 15-hour day, and we were exhausted, and we were bleary-eyed, and we were walking along. And I said, man, I must have made 100 different decisions today. And like, yeah. Then we took two more steps, and I went, and think about it. We got to make a hundred decisions today. How cool was that? You know, so it's that it's that it's that yin and yang. It was exhausting. It was you know terrifying. It was you know uh, this uncertainty, and yet there was this thrill that we were trying to do something hard. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in the value of trying to do heavy lifts, things that are not easy. That you know, and you address HuffPost Live and the thrill of it all, and some of the the obstacles you faced. Um, with producing that show in this hilarious chapter that I want to talk about right now in your book. It's called Snoop's Weed and Khloe Kardashian's Vagina. Yes, that is <laughs> that is actually the title of the story. <laughs> Why did you want to address the celebrity tango, as you call it, in that <clears throat> chapter? Yeah, you know, I mean, there is a certain level of obvious interest in what was that like? You know, you had this big job and there were celebrities coming Mm -hmm. in out of the office all the time. And was it great? And was it fun? And was it cool? Yes, yes, and yes. But there was also challenges. And so I write about two of the the bigger challenges that that I faced. Uh, uh, Because what I thought was, you know, my title at that time was, you know, founding editor of the Huffington Post and president and co-creator of HuffPost Live. So I was... I was the guy in the suit. If you looked at our office, we had 100 people, and I think the average age was like 13. You know, <laughs> We had a very youthful staff. And so I was the old uh, you know, salt-and-pepper guy, salt-and-pepper-haired guy uh, who wore the suit, and in the corner they'd come, oh, he's the guy. And that's what it said on my business card. But I think that my job title really should have been fireman because, really, man, that's what you ended up doing all the time. There was always a fire to put out somewhere. And um, I didn't realize how big a role uh, celebrities, because when we launched HuffPost Live, celebrities were going to be, as you said earlier, like the sprinkling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to sprinkle it a little bit on there. Uh, but it turned out, this is the internet. People like familiar faces. Yes. They like famous people. What I came to realize, for better or worse, and you know, this is, this is what you've chosen, America, you know, is that people would rather hear from a D-list celebrity giving their opinion on some politics or something like that, than like some expert Nobel Prize winner who you've never heard of. You know, that's the internet. That's going to get more clicks. And since my job was uh, to get clicks and to get viewers and to get streams, and uh, I'm a bit of a whore, you know, a bit of a whore, so I was willing to do that. You called yourself a realist, but a self-described click whore in that chapter as well. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, listen, this is what we got to do. We got to keep the lights on. We got to keep the microphones tuned, you know. And uh, obviously, I, I kid that I, I there are certain things that I wouldn't do. But I got to say, one of them was I had in my dream said, we're never going to have the Kardashians on. We're not going to have the Real Housewives on. That's not our thing. We're going to do serious journalism. And every now and then, we can have a cool, famous person on. And then, of course, you know, I got the call from our editors in the entertainment division. They're like, Roy. Anything Kardashian goes through the roof. I said, all right, all right. I, yeah, I'd like it to go through the roof. Uh, so, yes. So so we had Khloe Kardashian on, and the story is basically about a fight that I ended up having with her publicist, I should say. Three publicists. One of her three publicists. <laughs> um, you know, she had the personal publicist. She had the publicist for me. She had the publicist from Kotex U, which was this organization that she was representing. And they decided that we couldn't talk about Kim and Kanye. Well, 
we're journalists. Mm-hmm. We didn't allow there to be rules put on what we could and couldn't say. And be- that was the week they announced their pregnancy. Yes. Kanye had done it from a stage, right? Yeah. You know, hey, let's just shout out to my baby's mama or something, right? And there's like 20,000 people in the arena. Suddenly can't ask Chloe about it. And she'd actually tweeted about it before. So I was like, come on. We're not doing a gotcha. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to trick her. We're just going to say, hey, how does it feel to be an aunt? Or something? You know what I mean? It's something ridiculous. Yeah. Because we'd be the idiots. That's what they have to understand. You know, we would look like idiots if we sat there. This was making news. This was making headlines. And we didn't ask about it. But no, she dug her heels in and said, no, if you ask about that, we will walk off the set. You know, we won't even go on if you, yeah. unless you agree beforehand. And I said, now, normally I would say, there's the door. Yeah, I don't care. I wasn't going to bend to that. But we'd been promoting it on the front page. Khloe Kardashian coming live, you know. So I'm like, oh, man, we're going to look really idiots by having this, you know, Khloe Kardashian coming live thing. And so I figured, oh, man, what am I going to do? And so I said to her, listen, you need to have Khloe on the set and we're going to be nice about it. Or I will walk on the set and I will sit where she was supposed to sit. And for 30 minutes... I will talk about why Khloe Kardashian is not sitting in the seat, and then I will cut that into small clips, and I will put it on the front page of the Huffington Post and keep it there for a week. And she laughed. <laughs> That's funny. No, I'm not kidding. She was like, no, really. Did she turn pale white? No, she kind of was tough. She, you know, some, of these, some of them are tough, and she yeah. was sort of tough. And I finally said uh, to the stage manager, okay, Brad, mic me up. You know, And he came over and started micing me, and she goes, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but the funny thing, the payoff was – you know, she was there representing Kotex U, which is, you know, to help girls feel better about their bodies mm-hmm. and uh, understand, you know, uh, all these important things. And some, you know, we took a lot of calls. We had people Skype in, Google Hangout in. And one woman, you know, Skyped in and wanted to ask about, you know, vaginal odors. And Chloe, like a, like a pro, just jumped up and was like, oh, do vaginas smell? Mine smell like roses. Wow. And I was like... There's a quote for you, you know, and then she went on to talk about her vagina for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. Fantastically, by the way. Vaginas rule the world. I think yes. That's what she vaginas said. rule the world. And she, you know, she thought, you know, any man does, you can, can be beaten with a good, uh, a good puss. <laughs> I believe she said was her turn of phrase. And so I thought, you know what? That is an, an encapsulation of celebrity culture in its essence, you know. You better not ask about Kim and Kanye for one thing about some you know, people who've lived their life publicly on a TV show. But yeah, I'll talk about my vagina for 15 minutes. Sure, why not? <laughs> so that was kind of you know the 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 story about Chloe Chloe's uh, vagina in HuffPost Live. It's an amazing story. So I hope people pick up the book and read it. We won't spoil the other half, the Snoop side. Yeah, we'll, we'll save the soup. Too much. Save like a little teaser. But I do want to ask you because we're. We both live an abnormal life where we hang out with a lot of celebrities, yep. interview them yes. for our jobs, but also just like interact with them outside, off camera. Yeah. Um, what What have you learned over the years just interviewing them? You know, it's I don't think it's healthy. Um, you know, to be a celebrity, I think to get that much attention and to have people falling at your feet, and you know, it's the weirdest thing because I've known this for a long time. I a hundred years ago, a hundred lifetimes ago, I was also a freelance journalist. Uh, this was when I was in my early 20s. And I just stumbled into that like I've stumbled into many things. And, and suddenly I was doing profiles of celebrities for uh, women's magazines. Uh, Seventeen, Elle, Mirabella. And, um, you know, I saw that 
a lot of them were really unhappy with certain parts of their life. Most memorably, I interviewed Bill Murray after he had after Ghostbusters and mm-hmm. all that. And he had took it off and went to live in France because what he said was it was a great description. He says, my problem is I, not that I don't like people. I do like people. But I end up having the same conversation again and again and again and again. So, Bill, tell me about the gopher. No, <laughs> no more about the gopher in Caddyshack, you yeah. know. And so it's unnatural. And I felt it. I'm not even in the universe of a celebrity. But just doing this, the beginnings of this book tour, I did a couple of appearances and I did one uh, at my old haunts, you know, AOL build. And when I walked up, they had like five paparazzi, you know, and they were like, Roy, Roy, Roy. And they were clicking, clicking, clicking. And suddenly I felt like a a different person. Like, what am I walking like? What do I look like? You know, and I suddenly became very self-aware and also like, oh, I'm special, but I don't know if I like this level of specialness, you know, and imagine that happening every day every hour and you become sort of used to people serving you and you know people are nicer to you when you're famous you know and so i was sort of famous adjacent Mm -hmm. you know like i go places with ariana and you know the waves would part the the you know the sold out uh uh, restaurant would suddenly have a seat and yeah that's great you know, and you kind of could get addicted to that and you kind of get used to it. I mean, I see the allure of it. I'm not saying, oh, God, who would want to be famous? Basically, everybody in America wants to be famous now. Now, particularly when anybody in America can be famous. Yep, with social media. Right? <laughs> Just for being famous. You're Insta-famous or, you know, you're a real housewife. What the hell is that? Right? But suddenly they're really famous. And then you're able to spin it into something else. And so I get it. I understand it. I get the lure of it. Um, it's very appealing to be let behind the velvet rope, but it definitely changes your life. And then you sort of lose touch. I mean, this happens really a lot with actors. You know, I've interviewed a lot of actors because mm-hmm. one of the great perks of being the president of HuffPost Live is every now and then I'd go, oh, Robert Duvall's coming in. He's mine. You know, oh, John Stewart. I know who's going to interview him. <laughs> Me. I actually want to know. We talked about Tammy earlier on yes. the cover. Your wife. Yes. And we've been talking about your children. Yes. After they read it, what they t- what they tell you? Well, you know, it was an interesting. This was the this was the challenge that we were just talking about, because I was so committed to being honest and just putting it out there. And I have to say, I'm the. Uh, loser in most of these stories because to me that's comedy right I'm the schmuck who thinks something good's gonna happen and it doesn't that's comedy right or at least it's a it's a kind of New York Jewish kind of comedy you know (laughs) Um, uh, the thwarting of expectation and desire and that's sort of the heart of of a lot of these stories Um, so I want so you know it was about I was the punchline but I really wanted to try to put it out there and be really honest sometimes too honest maybe but this was the way I was was trying to do it now that's kind of who I am. I've always been unfiltered. I've always been kind of a guy who lives out loud, as I said, tries to say what's on my mind wherever I am. You know, not an idiot. Not you know, I don't blurt out things, but you know, yeah. if I think of something funny to say, I'm going to say it. And if, if it's in church or if it's in you know a, a meeting with the the board who's going to decide whether they give me thirty million dollars to build a, pro- I'm going to do it anyway because I just think that's you know, that's what I mean by turning lack self control from a negative into a positive. Exactly, you know, yeah. so but my wife is not this kind of person. By the way, she's the most lovely person that I've ever met. She's the nicest person that I've ever met. We've been together, uh, married 25, 
been together probably 28, 29. Congrats. Um, thank you, sir. And uh, she is a, uh, a not a mouthy New York Jew. She is a nice Catholic girl from Michigan. And she's much more circumspect. And sometimes when I, she'd come into the room and she'd say, so what are you working on? And I'd say, well, I'm going to write a story about this. She'd go, really? You're going to tell that story? And I would say, listen, don't censor me before <laughs> I even write the story. I can't listen to this, you know, because she would say, well, what's your brother going to think? I don't want to think about what my brother's going to think. Now, later, we might have to decide not to publish that story. But let's decide later. Right now, let me just, you know, flow. And she'd go, okay, but I'm not sure about this. I mean, that know? shocked reaction from anyone would make me want to write it even more. Right? Yes. Well, there's the bad boy part of it where you kind of want to tweak the nose of conformity and sort mm -hmm. of say, hey, society, guess what? <laughs> you know, and uh, but at the same time, you know, she's my wife and I didn't want her to be too upset about it. And I do have kids and I don't want them. You know, I mean, there's a certain fine line. You don't want to walk into your kids, you know, room and say, hey, let me tell you about what your mother and I did last night. No, that is not appropriate. You know, so so, I, you know, there's a but my kids are 22 and 18. Maybe they don't want to read all the stories. By the way, the stories are not all. They may all be outrageous, but they're not all of, uh, you know, like two or three of a sexual nature, yeah. you know. So uh, maybe they don't want to know that I did drugs uh, at a certain point in my life. I don't know. But that's up to them. They got to sort of deal with it. I was worried uh, only because I think the nervousness that my wife had sort of transmitted out and my daughter started getting nervous before she'd heard any of the stories. And it's like, Dad. Are my friends going to read this and I won't be able to go to school? And I'm like, no, leave me alone until I write it at least. You know what I mean? My son was a little bit more because he's a musician and he's he's older and mm -hmm. he's in college and he's like, you know, not phased as easily. Uh, but the cool thing was once I wrote the book and actually pretty far after I wrote the book, when I recorded the audio book, because I recorded the audio version, um, I brought it home and I said to my daughter, hey, I want you to hear she was like, am I going to freak out? I'm like, no, it's not like that, you know? And I played her one of the stories, and she was like, that's really funny, man. I really like that. Let me hear another. So I played her another one. And through this process, she ended up hearing 95% of the stories in the book. And it was like, this is great. And it's been, it was really wonderful. We, we had a couple of events in L.A., uh, for the you know pre-launch of the book, and my daughter came, and, mm. and when I read some of the stories, she was sitting there kind of beaming with pride, which made me ridiculously happy. You know, there's nothing like affirmation from relatives. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm wondering what I'm going to get because you know some of these stories. Um, uh, there's a story in there in which I lied to my wife and I lied to my sister-in-law um, uh, uh, about um, uh, uh, a time that I either did or didn't steal a tissue containing the tears of Oprah Winfrey um, when I worked with, with Oprah yeah. uh, for a short while. And uh, you should read the book, How I Ended Up Doing This. But I ended up lying uh, about these tissues, the provenance of these tissues. I, I, I said that they were Oprah's and they were, in fact, not Oprah's. They, they were, that was my snot and not, <laughs> not Oprah's tears. But we then gave this to my sister-in-law, who loves Oprah, and we put it in a Lucite container and we mounted it and, and she put it up on her mantelpiece, and it was a source of great pride. And uh, no one, and I never told my wife that this was a lie, and I didn't tell. And so finally, I wrote the, I finished writing the book in May of 2017. I told my wife the truth in May of 2018. Oh. <laughs> 
because <laughs> I figured the book is going to come out in a month. Yeah. And then I finally told my sister-in-law two weeks ago. And um, so far, I haven't been excommunicated from the family. Roy Seekoff, thanks so much for coming to Live from the Bar Cart. Where can people find Lax Self-Control? Out now. It's digital everywhere digital books are sold. Go to Amazon and it's in ebook and it's in paperback and it's in hardback and it's in audio. So go to Amazon, click on Roy Seekoff, S-E-K-O-F-F, Lack Self-Control, and that'll be your option. Awesome. Thanks, Roy. You bet. All right. And that was Roy Seekoff. You can find him online on Twitter at Roy Seekoff and also buy his book wherever books are sold online. And JJ, you talked to Brian Mazza. Who's he? Yeah. Brian Mazza is the president of Page Hospitality Group, uh, which owns uh, the Ainsworth restaurant franchise. And Brian is also a fitness expert. That's um, right. I saw him on the cover of Men's Health, right? That's right. And you probably also saw him on Instagram. Instagram. He sometimes has a shirt on, sometimes he doesn't. mostly has it off. All right. <laughs> well, let's take a listen to his abs. Yeah. Brian, how's it going? How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Uh, feeling good. Speaking of entrepreneurship, I just got about 45 emails in my inbox from the time we left Manhattan to get here. Yeah. So there you go. Can you tell me what one of them said? Uh, times about opening the properties for World Cup. Well, tell me what, what that the games is. are in, um, you know, they're in Russia. Uh-huh. So the time difference is obviously not in the favor of a bar owner. Uh-huh. Um, the previous World Cup in Brazil it was, so the times were more aligned on the East Coast with yeah. us. So the games are 6 a.m., 8 a.m., I think 10, 12, 2. So we're just, you know, we have multiple properties. Yeah. The Ainsworth brand has a bunch of properties yeah. in New York City, Jersey, and elsewhere. So we're just figuring it out right now. Try to how, how to align and get just you know for staffing traffic. purposes you know cost of doing business and everything it's not just hey let's just open and hope people come yeah yeah so we're just having internal discussions cool now about it but uh we've been discussing it for a while but now everyone's you know digging into it a little bit more yeah but a good time to be doing that beforehand uh, <laughs> not what should have been done last should have been done last week um so I'm very interested in your career Brian you have accomplished a lot at a a young age you're what 33 yes 33 um and you're already president of the page hospitality group which owns the ainsworth restaurant as you mentioned ainsworth franchise um well you started as an athlete though right yes you playing soccer uh at university of rhode island you got a scholarship Mm -hmm. so tell me how you went from being an athlete to an entrepreneur how how did that evolution come about well you know i i feel like they're very similar um, in that sense, you know, because, well, especially if you play an individual sport, you know, you, you you have to really rely on yourself and grind until you can get to a level of being an entrepreneur that you have to rely on a team. Right. But um, being an athlete, you know, there's so much work and dedication that goes into being successful, mm-hmm. winning a, a championship or making the team or, you know, not starting and then trying to come back and start the next season which I was talking to my, my intern, Benny, about, you know, his what he's going through right now and everything, right? So it's – you have to do everything possible in life if you're an athlete or an entrepreneur to mm-hmm. dictate what you want to get done, mm-hmm. um, which I was talking to him yesterday. It's that don't go into next season ever – don't give anyone next season an opportunity to say, well, you didn't do that, so you're yeah. not going to start or play. You must never allow anyone to ever have an excuse for you in that sense. So as an athlete, 
you know, I our, my club soccer team won a national championship at U16 level, and then probably everyone in my club went to go play Division One soccer to get a scholarship. So everyone was really, really good. I wasn't always the best player in that team, um, which is good, I think, in that sense because mm-hmm. it made me continue to work harder and harder. But being an athlete and being an athlete at a level where you're winning and you can take it to the next level of maybe going pro, there's a certain level of sacrifice, dedication, yeah. commitment, and really looking in the mirror at certain times where you have to dig deep when you don't want to. Yeah. And I think that is a direct correlation of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, I think everyone says they're an entrepreneur now, and unfortunately that's not always the case, right? Yeah. But there's an opportunity more than ever in this world in this time for people to be entrepreneurs. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, when we created the Ainsworth brand, we had no clue really what it was going to take off and be. And now, you know, our next property is opening in Nashville next month, and we're about to have eight Ainsworths. So wow. it's really crazy. But every day is something different, and it's not picnics and high fives every day. It's it's a struggle. It's a grind. It's You want to throw your phone against the wall sometimes. You want to quit sometimes. You want to, you know, but, again, if you want to be a successful athlete, there's certain things you have to be able to do every single day in order to continue that. Yeah. So I think I use those traits that I developed over the, you know, 30 years of yeah. growing up and the playing dis- and losing and winning and, and yep. not wanting to go to practice and then going to practice or not wanting to do something and having to do it. It's a direct correlation to yeah. business. And how did how did it come to be that your uh, you decided that your future was in entrepreneurship and the hospitality industry and not um, uh, sports. Well, I, you know, to be honest, I made a stupid, immature, bonehead decision my senior year in college and quit my soccer team because wow. I didn't get along with my coach. Hmm. Um, and there was opportunities maybe to go professional there. And you know, two years ago, I got asked to try out for the Red Bulls. Wow. At thirty years old, so there was a. I had the ability. I didn't have the mindset. Yeah. And you know, I always talk about this like. I don't live with regrets, but I live within that regret. That day I made that really dumb decision, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, listen, my, I have a great career now and I'm, I'm really thankful for it and I, I don't take it for granted and I work at it every day. But would it be really cool to play professional soccer? I'm sure it would have been really cool yeah. to do that too. So, you know. I mean, and who knows what life would look like if, if you I mean, I think everything right. happens yeah. for a reason, for right? Sure. Um, yeah. So... But yeah, I mean, I made a really bonehead decision that then, which derailed me from doing that, and I was kind of getting burnt out from it. Mm-hmm. But now that I look back, I probably should have bucked up a little bit yeah. and, and really handled yeah. it like a mature adult. But yeah. I didn't. Well, I mean, sometimes you know we're just not ready for certain opportunities, and then yeah, I mean, timing is everything, right? Timing come is later definitely on when we're ready. Yeah, right. Uh, so, so you're in college, you you leave. Uh, uh, school. So I leave school yep. and then I get into uh, women's fashion. I had an opportunity through my cousin to work at a showroom. Okay. So I did that. Um, I was at the showroom called Michael Cohen Showroom. I was there for a month and then got laid off because the brand I was working with went under. Yeah. And then I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to move into New York City. So one of the, the guys who's my best friend now who I played with, a bit older than me, had an apartment. And he was... Um, he actually broke up with his girlfriend, and he was like, hey, do you want to move into the city? And I had like $400 to my name at the time. So mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? Whatever. Let's just do it. I'll figure it out. So we got a rent-controlled apartment on 89th between 2nd and 3rd, a nice railroad apartment, two-bedroom mm-hmm. apartment. Um, I think my bedroom, I paid like $500 a month 
for it. Wow. Um, and then going to the University of Rhode Island, I had the luxury of, yeah, playing sports and, you know, being in that group of athletes. And I went to school with a couple of my best friends from home, and they were in sororities or fraternities, so I rolled with them. Hmm. Um, so I had that network as well. And then going to the University of Rhode Island, you have a lot of kids that are from the tri-state area. So you have kids that live in Long Island, live in Connecticut, Jersey, New York. Mm-hmm. So when we would come back for summers, we I would guest bartend at different bars in New York City. Yeah. And I would bring two, 300 people at a time. So coming back after I graduated, I said, you know, I'm going to continue to doing that now mm-hmm. um, just to, you know, make some money. So I did that, and then throughout that process, my sister at, at the time was a really prominent hair colorist in New York City at Warren Tracomi, mm. and her client was Rachel Yucatel. Wow. Um, at the time. So Rachel's like, hey, I'm working at this nightclub in the Hamptons called Dune. I need a young, hungry kid who wants to be my assistant. Ding, ding, ding. So my sister signed me up. She's like, listen, I signed you up for this club in the Hamptons. You have to drive out there Memorial Day weekend. You're going to meet this girl, Rachel, this guy, Matt, who my partner is now, mm-hmm. Matt Shindell, owns this club. Um, you need to meet them and go do your thing. I know you can crush it. So I went out there. Uh, I walk into this Hamptons house. Rachel, beautiful girl, comes down in a bikini. She's like, hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm like, oh, what is going on? She's like, listen, there's no room in the house, so you have to stay in my room. And I think at that time she was dating Derek Jeter. Wow. <laughs> or hanging out with Derek Jeter. So, Are you about to tell me that you took Derek Jeter's girl? No, 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 not oh, okay. at all. all right. So <laughs> I was so nervous that I remember sleeping in the room in like sweatpants, a sweatshirt, <laughs> and a hat because I didn't want to like, you know, have anybody think anything other than uh-huh. I was here to work. Uh-huh. So I go there, meet her. She was awesome. We got along great. I was her assistant to the point of like picking up her dog's shit on the ground when mm-hmm. they would walk, getting her laundry, getting coffee. Um, you know, it's kind of cool that we're doing this podcast right now because I was just talking to this guy from the Jordan brand who came in for some advice. Mm-hmm. And I said, when I first started, I did anything possible so everybody would remember me. Yeah. If it That's was like, really hey, I'm hungry. Advice. I'd be like, yo, I'll go out and get food for people. Yeah. Hey, I want to work out. Let's go. I'll do some workouts. Let's, yeah. let's beast it. Hey, I want to play basketball. I'll play you one-on-one. Yeah. That's I want to really play good football. Advice. So I think it's you have to become different in any job you have. That. And also make yourself available, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, so many people have egos that they won't do anything, but, hey, I was out getting garbage, picking up garbage, doing anything anybody wanted me to do. Yeah. Um, hey, I need, I need someone to paint the room. I'll paint it for you. You know, even if I didn't know how to do something, I figured it out. Right. So we did that, um, and then I met my partner, Matt, at the time, and, you know, I am a good athlete, so the next day after the first night of work, it was I was so enamored by the nightclub scene and mm-hmm. the Hamptons. I mean, people are spending ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand on tables. Models are coming in. Leonardo DiCaprio is coming in, reading a script. Jay Z's coming. I mean, it was just like wow. bonkers, right? Yeah. So the next day, I'm like, "Holy shit! What what is going on here?" And then my partner's like, "Hey, there's going to be a wiffle ball game. You know, you look like you're in pretty good shape. Do you want to? Do you know how to play wiffle ball?" I'm like, "Yeah, I can play wiffle ball." So me and him murder it, and then me and him just hit it off. Mm-hmm. Um, and throughout this process, I'm actually working at another clothing company as well. So I think I was making like $25,000 a year at that mm. clothing company. In the Hamptons, I was making anywhere from like maybe 800 a night to 1500 a night cash. Bam. And one thing that I've always done well that I've learned from my parents is hosting. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important um, for everybody to – How did you – because they would host dinner parties okay. or if it was Christmas or Thanksgiving. And I try to really instill in the people that I hire with our properties or just anything in life. I think it's really good for people to know is you want people to walk into your home 
and be like, wow, it smells really nice. It's very clean. The food is great. The mm-hmm. drinks are great. The music's awesome. I want to go back to Brian's house. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, you need to teach people that in hospitality. So I always knew that. My dad, I remember my dad, like, polishing the marble in the bathroom before, like, his brother would come over for Thanksgiving. Because wow. he just wanted it to be nice. Created you know? a good experience. You know, my my dad grew up in the Bronx, you know, in a one-bedroom apartment. So now that he had this house in Westchester, he wanted, you know, you you just you appreciate things. So, you know, doing all that, I, I really try to teach that with everybody. So when I was just a host, I just really loved it. I loved people coming to the club, yeah. and I had the ability to make their night great. Yeah. So I would take them to their table and make sure they had the perfect real estate and make sure that their drinks were great. And I was meeting the most important people in the U.S. or the world that are in the Hamptons. Yeah. I mean, major people. And then, you know, just we had this nightclub called Honey on 14th between 7th and 8th. Mm-hmm. And then just we'll just fast forward for time purposes. Mm-hmm. And then, we, you know, we have the next summer and then. You know, Rachel wasn't there anymore, but this guy, Andrew Goldberg, who I think is probably the best host in the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a partner at Marquee and Tao and everything. And hope Andrew's listening, but he taught me so much about the business. And then we'll fast forward again, and then it's the next summer. That's three summers about to approach. Mm-hmm. And Andrew and Rachel leave, and then I had the opportunity to run the show. And then I ran the show for three years. And then, you know, just the lifespan in, in nightclub business is really difficult. So then we transitioned out of that. And then that led us to 2009 mm-hmm. when we created the Ainsworth. Um, so we created the first real Sunday fun day for, you know, football in yeah. the city. What, what what were some of those initial challenges, you know, with the first location? Like what, what surprised you most about? Uh... I think it's really important. And I think for anybody in business is to make sure your capital is 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 correct and you have enough money to, you know, for a rainy day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, hurdles like that, you know, in the beginning of a business, you don't know what to really expect. I also didn't think we didn't expect the business to be that successful in the beginning. Mm. I mean, you have to be a little lucky sometimes too, right? So when we opened in 2009, you have the Yankees win the world series. You have Alabama win national championship. We're an Alabama bar. Mm-hmm. We love the Yankees. So that was crazy. <laughs> I think the jets and the giants both made it to AFC NFC championship game. Mm. So that was pretty insane. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we create this football party, it's – I mean, I remember the Giants would have a game at 1 p.m., and they were at our bar at 5 p.m. Wow. That's how, that's how it was. Because yeah. no one in New York City ever saw a sophisticated so you can, you sports bar like that. created a destination for a this A destination. Event. We created an experience for people. Yeah. They've never – they never saw TVs that are 25 feet up. They never saw a big space like that. They never saw girls like that at bars watching watching games, getting into it. They didn't have food right. and elevated experience. So I just think, yeah, the challenges you, you, in any business or anything you do, you never you never know what's next. Yeah. And you might have this one vision, but right. it, that might change a little bit, right? Right. right. So. Cool. Um you have this kind of rigorous diet and exercise uh regimen. But you also came up with the mac and cheeseburger I did, that, I did that Ainsworth it. became famous for. Yes. So how did you come up with that? If like, well, if, everybody who knows me knows I can eat. Uh huh. So I can really dig in if I need to get after it. Okay. Um, so I, when we created this mac and cheeseburger, well, we we wanted to you know take our food and culinary game to another level. So yeah. we said let's create a gourmet burger program, and I wanted to hit all different types of burgers. So, okay. 
when I first created the mac and cheese burger, I'm thinking, you know, what does everybody really love? Everyone loves mac and cheese. Even like me, I love mac and cheese. If you don't love mac and cheese, something's wrong with you. <laughs> I love a great cheeseburger, right? Mm-hmm. How can Who we doesn't? figure this out and make this concoction one? So I spoke to our, our culinary team, and we had so many different meetings and different options how we could do this. But I said, we just can't get a, a you know a burger and just put mac and cheese on. That's just boring. So we figured that we could do a mac and cheese panko patty. Mm-hmm. That's so you got the bun and you got the patty, mm-hmm. then you got the, you know, the meat and you got the cheese and then the mac and cheese goes on top. I haven't and had it, lunch yet, so like you never had it. I'm, have you I'm had not, this burger yet? I haven't, but I'm saying like I'm starving right now, just like hearing you <laughs> like describe it to me. And then we just did the 24 karat gold wings. Oh, that was the, that was Ainsworth. That's Ainsworth. Wow, I did that with Jonathan Chevin, Food God. Yeah. So you, so it seems like you create a lot of food to be purposely memeable. Yeah, uh, unfortunately and fortunately, you need to use social media these days to to continue a brand, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's just the day and age we live in. Yeah, you still need to provide that consistent experience as much as you can, but you need to do other marketing things in yeah. order to. I mean, I don't if you Google the Gold Wings. I mean, I think we've been covered by every outlet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, World Star, yeah. Complex. Hype Beast. When I, when I went on Hype Beast, it was crazy. Is it like, are they like r- dipped in real gold? It's edible gold, yeah. It's wow. It's edible gold sprinkled wow. on it. And how much does that dish cost? So you can get 10 for 45, 20 for 90. Okay. And then if you want to be the big big boss in town, you can get the the $1,000 package for with 50 wings, $1,000, and a gold bottle of Ace of Spades. Wow. That's actually cheaper than I thought you were going to say. People have been doing it. It's been really crazy. Wow. So tell me about that process. How do you, when you think, okay, I need like a, a hit that's going to that, that's gonna go viral and people are actually going to come try. Well, I did the mac and cheeseburger three and a half years ago. Yeah. And been riding that wave for a long time. Yeah. And then I think if you force things like that, mm-hmm. it never works. Yeah. Because so, um, it looks obvious like a, like you're trying to get the attention. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are trying to get attention, right? Yeah. And you want people to come in, but- it has to happen organically. Mm-hmm. So it happened. I know Jonathan forever. I ran into him in the East Village uh, in January when I was with Leo and my wife, and he wanted to see Leo, so we all were hanging out. Mm-hmm. And then I just figured, hey, how could we do something together since you're food god? Mm-hmm. And then we just shot the shit about it, and then we came up with the gold wings together, and then I executed it for him, and it's probably been his best thing on his Instagram page since nice. he started. And you have a pretty um, large Instagram following, Personally, you, or the brand? You. Yeah. You personally. Do you have a preference uh, for which platform you use to kind of grow your own personal brand? Because I don't know how active you are like on other platforms like Twitter. Or- well, that's really interesting because when I sat with Gary Vee, mm-hmm. um, he gave me some really good advice on using LinkedIn mm. to you know reach the professionals in, in that sense a little bit more. So I've been been digging in on that and then using that platform. And But Instagram is my main my main way to spread the love. Yeah. And why why that one first? Do you think why why does that come more natural to you? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've been on Facebook forever, um, yeah. and Twitter I just use usually just for my news sources and everything. But Instagram is just more fun, I guess, to create the content, throw a filter on, change this, change that, tag this person, yeah. collab with that person. Yeah, I know that you are expanding uh, the Ainsworth to some different cities. Yes, uh, so this year. yeah, we have four Ainsworth in New York City. We have two in New Jersey, one in Hoboken, one in Newark. We just opened up in Leewood, Kansas, and next month we'll be in Nashville. Nice. I love Nashville. It's one of my favorite awesome cities. Awesome city. Yeah. Everyone is so cool there. Everyone's so sweet. And 
the F and F and B scene is is just booming. Yeah. Um, so what what factors do you decide? Um, or what factors play into your decision for where you want to open a new restaurant? What are you looking at? So since we are a premier sports brand, mm-hmm. we need to go to markets that have just really strong followings for teams. Not necessarily teams that are great. Yeah. Uh, just teams that have diehard fans and teams that really love F and B. Yeah. And I think our brand is so scalable and translates so well to so many different people that you also don't have to love sports to come to our brand because our food is great. Yeah. Um, you know, football is only 17 days out of the year. Right. So we have to be able to give a product that people can like 365 days of the year. Right. So I think we do that well and we complement our brand really well with the way we design it, the way our menus are laid out. Um, you can, you know, sometimes we don't have game sound on for games unless it's a popular game or a big time game. So we, we make it really inviting for everybody. You could do your birthday party, you could do an event. So we go into these cities like Nashville, awesome hockey, really strong football. We're right across the street from Vanderbilt, great college. Yep. You know, we're in Kansas, you know, you got the Chiefs, you got the soccer's over there, you got the Royals. So we really want to go into markets where we can be, you know, a home for people to watch games. Right. That's great. Uh, well, Brian, thanks so much for making time for us at 1.37 p.m. Yep. live from the bar cart. Um, where can our listeners follow you on social? So you can catch me at, at Brian Mazza on Instagram, and that's probably the most consistent and best way, you know, and LinkedIn as well. Awesome. Yeah, and that was also Brian Mazza. Follow him on Instagram, where you can find him mostly, um, especially if you want to add more thirst traps to your <laughs> IG feed. And learn about all the hustles in his life, because mm-hmm. they're both very accomplished people, and those are the guests we like to have on the show. All right, it's time for this week's latest launch, where we tell you what you should listen to, what you should watch, what service you should try. What you should read, what you should go see and experience. What you drink. That too. Ignition sequence start. So what's your latest launch? My latest launch is the Oprah Winfrey uh, exhibit at the National Museum of African-American Culture and History in D.C. DC, Yeah. So me and my friend Shana went this past uh, weekend and it was pretty awesome. Um, So the museum opened this exhibit um, a couple weeks ago. Uh, featuring Oprah, the media mogul herself, and her life. And um, it was, first of all, huge. And then second of all, that it was just packed with people. Um, and if you really want to hear about and, and learn about a story of hustle, I mean, they have items from her childhood, from when she first uh, started as a news reporter to the first check she wrote to her church as a tithe um, to uh, the first pair of shoes that she wore uh, to uh, the Tonight Show. Um, Just all these like kind of mementos. They have her desk from Harpo Inc., the uh, production company that she started that she used to buy her show back from ABC. I mean, it was it was just amazing. All right, enough about Oprah. Time for my latest (laughs) launch, which is the Entertainment Weekly cover. So they put the cast of Breaking Bad on it. And you may be asking why, because such an old show went off the air about five years ago. Show started 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. But they brought the cast back together for the 10-year reunion of when the show launched. And so on the cover, we have Bryan Cranston, Anna Gunn, Aaron Paul, Bob Odenkirk, and they just kind of go down the history of what it meant to them to be um, on this like 
Emmy-winning show mm -hmm. that is considered to a lot of people as the best show in television history. Yeah. And I'm one of those people who actually just rewatched it this year um, with one of my buddies, and uh, it was cool to see that their Twitter was still really active. Um, so they'll respond to people who are binge watching it now. Yeah, I mean, I know Breaking Bad has the spinoff Better Call Saul, right. but I'm so grateful that they didn't try to bring uh, a sequel back or try to revive. We're seeing this this era yeah. of like uh, TV show revivals, and I think Breaking Bad ended on such a high note. You know, they knew where they wanted to start, and they knew exactly where they wanted to end when the show mm -hmm. started. And so the fact that it just they just tied a nice mm -hmm. bow on it and didn't bring it back like a lot of shows are doing now, yeah. I really appreciate. Anyway, uh, so yeah, the latest launch um, the, for the last one in this edition. Facebook's news. Yeah, it's a really cool feature that Facebook um, just released, and it allows you to snooze certain keywords on your Facebook timeline. And the purpose of this is to help you avoid spoilers. Now, I, I don't mean, know. That's what they tell you, but I know some people are going to use it to, like, snooze politicians names or mm. friends they don't want to hear about so yeah i mean when it comes to that stuff i'll just unfollow people okay. <laughs> but you snooze people when you want to avoid spoilers mostly yeah what facebook snooze feature reminds me of is twitter's mute feature which lets you do the exact same thing so you don't see certain spoilers in your timeline or if there's a trending topic that's really annoying to you you can just like filter that out of your life forever yeah so it's yeah. long overdue for Facebook, and I'm ready to use it. Yeah, me too. I mean, just this week, you know, I know I'm probably not going to see uh, the RuPaul's Drag Race finale live. I'm usually never home to see it live. Uh, but if I, if I can snooze the keywords in my Facebook feed, just like I will on Twitter, then I can, uh, more, I can better navigate uh, the spoilers for yeah well you're gonna won. mute it on facebook but i sit next to you at work so i'm just gonna spoil it anyway that's because i'm that kind of guy <laughs> i knew you were and, that kind of guy and, and i and i can testify that you are <laughs> that kind of guy <laughs> all right well that's it for our latest launch uh we hope you pick up the entertainment weekly cover story with breaking bad on it or and check it out on ew.com and also go see the Oprah Winfrey exhibit at the at the National Museum of African American History and Culture uh, by the Smithsonian. And let us know if you end up using Facebook's news. Um, you can comment in the review section, yeah. or you know, find us on Instagram at one thirty seven p.m. or Twitter at one thirty seven p.m. or just news Brian. Wow, you don't need to see anything he's posting on social media. I can I can testify to that. All right. And remember, if you want to own your future, start this minute. That's 1.37 p.m. Live, Live from, from the, the bar, bar cart. cart.